Crosby Nash of Crosby, Stills, and Nash wrote that song 54 <laughs> years ago uh, in 1969. As I was looking that up, I was like, that seems like an awfully long time ago. He saw this photograph of a child holding a toy hand grenade uh, with a little menacing look on his face. And he wrote, the image makes me realize that we have to do better as parents to raise our kids in a more affectionate way. We must help them deal with their lives, their friends, and, fellow, and their fellow human beings in a much more compassionate manner. Because violence is not the way to deal with our differences. And so... That inspired the song, Teach Your Children Well. It's a song about the importance of teaching and connecting with one another. And I don't know if you caught it, but not just adults teaching children, but children teaching adults. And as we continue uh, in our sermon series, The One and Others, we investigate what it means to live as a church. What does it, how do we treat one another? How are we to act around one another? in this strange thing called the church. And as I went through the week, I've really been thinking about this sermon series, which I'm sure all of you just, you know, just think about this all the time throughout the week. And I began to think about this, is what type of church do I want to pass on to my kids, but also to all the other kids, to the next generation that's coming after us? And I don't just mean you know, how much money are we going to pass on in the bank or what building are we going to pass on to them? I mean, like, what kind of a place? Like, what's the feel of the place? What, what's the culture of the place that I want to pass down to the next generation? It would be worth reflecting on. Do we want to hand down when our time is up, right? When it's time for us to go and hand over the reins? Do we want to pass down a church that's marked by love, that's marked by encouragement, service, acceptance? Or do we want to hand down a church that looks a lot like the world, maybe you've just got some Jesus stuff sprinkled in on top of it? But I want to hand down, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, a church that's not from this earth. I want the next generation to say, man, that was such a beautiful gift I am so happy they did that for me that I want to turn around and pass it on to the generation that's coming after. What my parents, both physical parents and spiritual parents, have given to us as people, I want to pass that along. I think about that a lot. And if you are interested, right, if you call Rooftop home, if, you know, if Rooftop is your place, you should be thinking about that as well. And if we want to make that happen, it's going to take a word that uh, is almost taboo in the Christian world, work. It's going to take work to pass along a church like that. Because guess what? If we want to pass along an encouraging church, guess what? We need to be encouraging. If we want to pass on by a church that's marked by love, guess what? We got to start doing that right now. If we want to Pass along a church that loves and serves one another. We have to love and serve one another right now. And this morning, I want to talk to you about what it takes to pass on a church like that. One of the things that it's going to require is that we teach and admonish one another. 
And so let's look at what it means to teach and admonish one another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So what does it mean to teach and admonish one another? Well, first, let's take a look at those two words, teach and admonish. The first word there, teach, is a pretty straightforward concept. It's the Greek word, didasko. It means to pass along information. That's pretty simple. Teaching was a big part of Jesus' life and ministry. The Bible says that he went around teaching. He passed along information about who he was regarding his mission, the kingdom of God. Sometimes the teaching was formal, right? Like we just did a whole sermon series on some of his most famous formal teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It could all, formal teaching also takes place in, maybe you go to a class at rooftop or maybe a seminary or maybe part of another church and you go to classes where there's a teacher and they teach you. But oftentimes teaching can be informal, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we get a story of one of these informal teaching moments that changed the course of church history in a lot of ways. In Acts chapter 18, there was this gentleman. He was a gifted teacher uh, in the city of Ephesus. He was teaching about Jesus. He's very well-spoken, incredible teacher. And one day, there was a woman named Priscilla and her husband, and they heard him teaching, and they realized that he didn't quite have all the information. Somehow, it didn't get all the way passed down to him correctly. So what did they do? They didn't say, well, you know, I hope a pastor comes along and helps this guy. No, they invited him over to their home and there Priscilla and her husband explained to him the way of God more adequately, the Bible says. They didn't invite him. They didn't say, hey, go take that seminary class or go do this or go do. They brought him into their home and taught him. So we need to be a place that we need to teach one another Pass along information, both in formal and informal settings. But the Bible in our passage this morning also says that we need to admonish one another. Admonish one another. Now, that's not a word we use very often. It's a combination of two Greek words meaning mind and place. And really what it means is to place a warning into someone's mind. Paul uses uh, this quite a lot. In fact, that's a lot of what his ministry was, if you read the New Testament letters. He's writing to churches that are already up and going. They're already meeting. They're worshiping. They're doing life together. And he's writing them, warning them, but hey, I see this is kind of going on. Might want to look out for that here. Hey, I, you know, you wrote me about this. Let me kind of show you what this really means. And in 1 Thessalonians, he writes this, we urge you, brethren, to admonish, to warn the unruly. So it's more than just teaching all facts. It's not just coming together in church and saying, okay, listen to this expert, give you all the facts, and then you go off and do whatever you want. We have to warn one another about the challenges of life in a fallen world. Think about teaching a teenager to drive. Now, uh, I was a, a youth pastor for many years, and um, Surprisingly, I've taught a few, uh, well, probably more than a handful of teenagers how to drive because their parents were like, uh, I can't do this. Um, so for the sake of mine and my son, mine and my daughter's relationship, will you teach them how to drive? So I was like, sure. 
I probably should have charged them now looking back on it. But um, so, but what do we do when we teach someone to drive? What did I do, right? I, we don't sit down and say, okay, get out a sheet of paper and I'm going to give you all the data about driving. Let me pass along all the information. No, what do we do? <laughs> Uh, stressfully, we get into the car with them uh, and we sit there with them, hanging on for dear life, praying under our breath. But we're also, right, we're with them in the car and we're talking to them. We're giving them warnings like, hey, maybe too many, as uh, kids might say, but we say, hey, look out for that corner up there. Look out for that car. Hey, you're going too fast. Hey, if you go too fast, if somebody hops out here, you're not going to be able to react. We get in there with them and we talk to them and we warn them. So thinking about my life, teaching and warning, teaching and admonishing. I remember a time I was working at a church and felt a call to work at maybe another type of church. I really wanted to grow and what it meant to be a pastor. And I kind of felt this, well, I want to go to seminary. And I came to ministry later in life. So I was thinking like, okay, how am I going to do the seminary thing? Like, how am I going to pay money? How am I going to... And when am I going to work it in? Do I quit my job? Do I, you know, I was doing all this. And there's a pastor I had connected with in the town. And I like in my brain, I can see myself sitting in that booth, sitting at that restaurant, talking with him, coming up with every excuse or this or that. And finally, he lovingly just looked at me and said, Jeremy, it's never going to be as easy as right now. If you wait a year to do this, you're going to be a year older. You're going to be a year more a million other things that can happen. It's never going to be as easy as right now. And he was right. And from there, I enrolled in seminary, moved to St. Louis, met my wife. Whether you celebrate it or not, I'm here right now because that gentleman took the time to sit with me and warn me, to sit with me and talk to me and teach me about life and myself and my own propensities to to struggle and, and overthinking it, he sat there with me. It's never easier than right now. So how do we do this? How do we do this effectively? Well, the Bible gives us uh, some great teaching on how to do this. So there's really four things that I see as I look at this passage and I look at a few that come right around it. There's four ways that we can teach and admonish one another. First is with the word. Second, to warn. Third, in wisdom. Fourth, with warmth. So this one uh, sermon is brought to you by the letter W. Teach your children well, and we're going to do these things well. Let's take a look at the first one. We teach and admonish with the word. If we're going to teach, if we're going to admonish one another, there's got to be some material. There's got to be something that we're trying to get across. Well, what is it? Well, the scripture says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If we want to teach and admonish one another, we got to know the stuff, which means we have to dwell in the stories of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. And we have to dwell in it. When I read that word dwelt, when I read that word dwell, I immediately thought of the incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. Think about this. We just did two, three months. I can't remember off the top of my head. A couple months on Jesus's greatest teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me ask you, how are you doing with that? Have you thought about that? 
Have you dwelt in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus dwelt with us, according to John chapter 1. Jesus didn't just visit for a sermon series and then go, all right, on to the next thing, right? He dwelt with us. He lived on earth with humanity. Earth became his home, and we have to let the words of Jesus become our home. It's not just, oh, cool, sermon series on Sermon on the Mount. I wonder what the next one's going to be. No, 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 no. We have to dwell in them. We have to let the words of Jesus get down into the dirt and grit of our lives, just like he did in the incarnation. He took on dirt and dwelt among us. There's a story from history, um, Alexander the Great. I know Matt referenced Alexander the Great a couple of weeks ago. This is the only acceptable picture of Alexander the Great that you can put up there. Just a warning to Matt. But according to Plutarch, who was an ancient historian, Alexander the Great, one time they conquered this town. They brought him uh, this small little container and they uh, is beautifully adorned. And they said, all right, what do you want to put in here? This is a really nice thing to keep things safe in here. What do you want to do? And he went around and he asked all of his advisors what he should put in there. And he decided on uh, Iliad or the Homer by Iliad. The Iliad by Homer. There we go. Backwards. He kept it in there. Rumors was that he slept with the Iliad under his pillow. Obviously, he didn't do that because they didn't have like bound books back then. But he, he kept this word and he carried it with him everywhere he goes. And if you read uh, the life of Alexander the Great as told by Plutarch, there's numerous times where the night before he has to choose where he's going to set up his fortifications or his next city. And he dreams of the Iliad and that one of the characters came to him and spoke to him and told him where to set up the fortifications. One time he's wounded in battle. He's like bleeding and he quotes the Iliad. It just kind of comes out of him. Alexander the Great dwelt in the words of the Iliad. That much more for us. It's the season of Lent. Lent is a great time to say, Lord, I want to dwell in your word more. I want to spend more time with Jesus. So I'm going to give up whatever it is, X, Y, Z, whatever's taking up time. I want to give that up for 40 days because I want to let the word of God dwell in me more. And what I love about this passage is really the first word, although dwelt is a pretty powerful word. The first word in this passage is, if you got your Bible, look at it, let. It doesn't say beg God to give you his word, plead with God, uh, bargain with God, prove to God that you're worthy of his word. It says let. God is ready to pour it out. We have to let him have his way. Now, that's easier said than done, of course. But listen to how the Bible advises us to dwell in the word. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. They weren't like, hey, preach a sermon series on my commandments. And then, no, 
dwell in them. As I was preparing this this week, I found a a great resource that I wanted to share with you. Um, There's a Bible reading plan that I found online, and every month is a different theme of Jesus' life. Every month, a different theme, a different teaching, all focused on the person of Jesus, okay? Now, I have to give a warning here. I accidentally stapled it on the the wrong side. A few people have pointed this out to me. I just, you know, I beg with you to carry your cross and uh, get this misstapled paper. I know it's a challenge, but, um, but this is a great way to dwell in the Word of God this year. It's March. You can hop on right here. It's got, look, you got the rest of the year. It's got some great little reflection things. There's 25 copies of them out in the lobby. I would highly encourage you to go grab one, jump on board. Maybe your small group can do it together. That's a great way to dwell in the word of Christ. So that's one. Another way we can do it, another way we're called to do it, is we're called to admonish, to warn one another. Now, we mentioned earlier, right, I said that uh, part of the challenge here, or part of the call, is to place a warning in each other's heads. Now, this is really challenging, to warn one another. It's really challenging for a few reasons. One, it's kind of scary to admit that we live in a world where we have to warn each other. That there really is an enemy out there. That... There really is a world that is built that's not really interested in human flourishing and love. It's interested in a million other things, and we live in it. And what happens in our lives and why we need to warn one another is we're pulled out of that world and we're placed into God's kingdom. But when we come out of that world, we still carry a lot of wounds. We carry a lot of scars. We carry a lot of pain. And a lot of times those things can blind us. And we need others to come alongside of us and warn us about the dangers that lie ahead. Those destructive sins pattern things in our lives that keep tripping us up and we just can't see it because we're, there's so much pain, there's so much hurt, there's so much rejection. We need someone to come alongside us and say, hey, I see why that relationship seems appealing to you. I see why that decision seems appealing to you. I see why that behavior seems appealing to you, but it's really not going to bring you healing. It's it's hard. It's hard uh, because uh, these conversations sometimes are not super enjoyable. Most of us if you're a, uh, a human being, you enjoy the company of other human beings. You, most people want to be in relationship with other humans. And we don't want to risk hurting someone's feelings. We don't want to risk the friendship by warning them. Tim Keller says it this way. Today's culture believes that the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. That's the world in which we find ourselves as Christians in 2023. That what we need salvation from is even the idea that we need salvation. So to come alongside somebody and say, hey, this looks off. Hey, this looks wrong in our culture can be highly offensive. What our culture would say, that's dangerous. 
Now, I say all this not to scare you. I don't want you leaving this place like afraid of the world. I want you leaving rooftop Sunday worship, not leaving rooftop in general. I don't want you leaving here thinking, oh, gosh, what a horrible, scary place. We got to warn each other. There's everywhere. It's just awful. No, I want you leaving this place thinking, yeah, it is scary out there. But you know what? There are people in this church who will love me enough to warn me if there's something that I just can't get right. Many years ago, there was a couple in a church I was a part of. I was pastoring and they came to me and they shared um, they had been dating for a year and uh, she ended up pregnant and they weren't married. And they came to me and they were asking if I would do their wedding. And it wasn't that that kind of gave me a little bit of pause. It was that I knew the gentleman's history. He had a lot of struggles with alcohol. They'd only been together for a year, and during that year, he'd been on a pretty stringent probation for a few drinking things, so he had a lot, of, a lot of ghosts there. And it seemed to me it was more of, well, hey, let's get married because we did this kind of bad thing, and if we can kind of maybe get married, it'll cover it, and we'll be okay. And, and I remember telling them, hey, let's, let's not rush into this, okay? This is, a, this is a tough place to be in. It's not wise to make decisions when you're going through really hard things like this. Let's all take a deep breath. You, you, you both got some work to do. Gentlemen, you got a lot of work to do. Let's take a deep breath. Let's not rush into this. Shortly after I went on vacation, came back and found out that they had left the church and found somebody else to marry them. They got married. About a year later, the divorce was plagued with infidelity, DUIs. Two years after that came a messy divorce, a cross-country move. It was like, it was really heartbreaking to see. I don't say that to say, oh, Jeremy's got all the insight. He can figure it all out. I say all that to say that we got to be willing to go there. We got to be willing to risk potentially a relationship. If we really love each other, we got to be willing to take that risk, to take that step. But we need to do it the right way. We need, to be, we need to do it the right way. The next descriptor, Colossians tells us, we need to do it in all wisdom. A way we can teach and admonish is to do it in all wisdom. Wisdom is what happens when you take the data, the teachings, and you take the warnings and you put them together and you live life. Wisdom is the ability to discern what is true, good, and right. And to apply that into the situations of life in a way that honors God and brings blessings to oneself and to those around us. It's not just a matter of intellectual ability or expertise. It comes from a deep abiding relationship with God and his people. See, our world oftentimes equates intelligence with wisdom. If I asked you who's the wisest person you know, many of us would try to think, okay, well, you know, who's the smartest person I know? But the book of James reminds us that this, who is wise and understanding among you? That's a great question to ask. Let them show it by not their ACT score, but by their good life, done by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But there's another kind of wisdom. But if you harbor bitterness, envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Listen, verse 16, I, I can't think of a better way to sum up social media than verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But wisdom is a good life done in good deeds. This is why we need to be careful where we go for teaching, where we go for warnings. Is it by people who've done, who've lived a good life, they've done good deeds, or is it this space that is just spewing with envy and selfish ambition? Listen, middle schooler, high schooler, elementary school student, hear me here. I know life is hard. I know that. I know it's really tough. And I know there's probably some old heads in here who will say, well, you know, it's so much harder. When I, I don't know. It's really hard right now. It's a real challenge to be this age right now. So listen, <laughs> this is like every youth in high school. Y'all are about to like banish me if I say this. Um, I know it's a challenge to listen to mom and dad, to the pastor to that old head from church, right? I get it. They dress lame. Listen, I, I remember when there was no internet, okay? I remember when there were no cell phones. So I get it. You're like, how in the world are you going to tell me about how to live life when you logged on to AOL? <laughs> I get it. And it might seem like we have no idea. We can't relate in any way. But the adults at Rooftop... Hopefully your parents in your life, they've lived a lot of life. They've seen a lot of good things. They've seen a lot of bad things. And it would benefit you to listen. Listen here. It doesn't mean that you can't talk about it. Doesn't mean you can't ask questions about it. Doesn't mean uh, that you can't even maybe offer a counterpoint or push back in some way. It doesn't mean you just got to sit there and take it. What it means is that maybe you can, your default can be trust. Maybe your default can be, okay, it gets on my nerves when they talk to me about this, but you know what? I'm going to just trust. My default's going to be to trust them. And if we talk and explore and, and I can have my own thoughts and I can talk about it, but I want to trust But listen, I'm not here to beat up on youth and uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers and elementary school kids all morning. Let's turn the tables around. Parents, let's look at the third way the Bible says we are to admonish and teach one another with warmth. I talked about this a few weeks ago about forgiving each other, but it applies here again. Verse 12 of Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Parents, when it comes time to teach, when it comes time to warn, would you say these are the descriptors that define your teaching and warning? If I were to take your youth student out to lunch after service and ask them, hey, when you talk to mom and dad or when you have conversations about life, would you say they're marked by a wisdom that comes from heaven that is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. 
Let's all take a deep breath here. But maybe we really need to look at ourselves and say, hey, am I not getting through because I won't come to them in this manner? Now, let me right here. Here's the test. Uh, If either one of you, (laughs) if you leave this sermon and you go, did you hear what Pastor Jeremy said? (laughs) You like you lost it. All right. Like you just missed it. (laughs) Okay. Jeremy told you to listen to me. You need to listen to me. Or if you look at your dad or mom and say, Jeremy told you to be gentle, right? Like you missed it. All right. But these are conversations we need to have. We have to become these type of people and not just, this isn't just a parent kids thing. This is for all of us as a church living life together because here's a little insider secret, right? Here's like, I mean, listen up. This is a super deep secret teaching. Most people want to be around people who are compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. There's not a 30, 40, 50 year old on this planet who doesn't want to hear from someone like that. I've never sat through a class and thought, man, that lady was just too kind. I'm never going back. No one's ever sat down with me to give me a a gentle, compassionate warning. And and I left going, oh, my gosh. I mean, could they not just be more harsh and uh, selfish? I mean, golly, please. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 proves the talks about this. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Especially for men, we think gentleness is like, oh, that's a woman thing, or that's like a weak person thing. That's a Jesus thing. Are you gentle? He says, in the Spirit. What does that mean? How do I live in the Spirit? Well, if you have your Bible, you can look at the verse right before that where Paul says it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, forbearance, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. When it comes time to teach and admonish, we have to be those kinds of people. I want to end this morning talking about an aspect of this sermon series that I think I've just missed. Every time I preach, I feel like I, I miss the one anotherness of this. What does this mean to, to do it to one another? Because that's what it says. One another, not pastor to another, not or another to the pastor. If I disagree with the sermon, I need to go up there and talk to him, right? I'm just, does a joke. You can come talk to me if you disagree with me on a sermon. I hope that you do, right? I need to be, I need help. Just remember to do with passion, gentleness, compassion, and all those things. But it doesn't just say one, it doesn't just say pastor, you do it all. There's a lot of times in life we kind of default to that. Well, the pastor will teach. Well, the pastor will warn. Well, no, it says one another. Think about Priscilla and the story we, in Acts 18. She didn't wait on someone else. She did it. We've got to be willing to do this in one another's lives. We need to be a church that's going to dwell in the teachings of Jesus so that with wisdom and warmth, we can teach and warn one another. And that happens most often in something that Rooftop calls small groups. That's where the one another's really shine, right? You can come in on Sunday morning. Hopefully you get good teaching. Hopefully you get compassionate, gentle, and it's all the things. But Sunday morning's not enough to live a full life. 
It's not. Not in a fallen world. Sunday morning only is not going to cut it. We've got to find people that we could come alongside. Maybe that's in a formal small group. Maybe that's some kind of other relationship with people where you can get around each other and talk about what's going on. We want to help you do that at Rooftop. It's a challenge. It's not easy. We're working on a lot of stuff, but we want to help you do that. This morning, I want to end with just two questions for you to ask yourself this morning. Number one, who do you need to teach and admonish? Who in your life do you need to say, you know what, I need to spend some time teaching this person about Jesus? I see this thing in their life. They can't seem to get it. I need to take a deep breath, maybe be willing to risk some uncomfortableness and warn them. And then secondly, here's a question. Who is trying to teach and admonish you? Who's actively trying to get into your life and help you and you just keep pushing them, keeping them at arm's length because you're afraid?